engineer. Everyone, I'm Michael Watson, host of the Hedgeer podcast, where we go over hedge funds, prop trading shops, finance, and the technology that is used behind the scenes, interviewing the engineers that are building it all out. And today we have uh, Neil Samani on, who is the founder of Eclipse, which is building out some of the most interesting technology in the blockchain space around ZK rollups. He and I used to work together uh, at Sedell. He worked in commodities. I was in equities, so never really worked directly together. Uh, but a little over a year ago, or around a year ago, he made the jump to go headfirst into the crypto space and has had an awesome trajectory since then. So I flew out to SF in this amazing studio to interview uh, Neil, super excited to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'd love to just kick it off. Like, give me a little bit about your background. Like you were at Airbnb, Citadel, then you make this jump into the crypto space. So like, walk me through how that happened and how you decided to go from a software dev to a founder. Yeah, so uh, like you mentioned, started over at Airbnb. And at that point, I... I kind of chose that because at the advice of my mentors, they said, if you want to be a founder, one of the best skill sets you can have is just as a software engineer. So I started Airbnb and it was close to IPO. COVID hit, Airbnb was fairly impacted. And then the work got really boring. I still stuck around for like another six months or so. But I interviewed at Citadel and uh, our mutual friend Kent was going to be my manager. And he was. Uh, he just like showed me how great it was uh, with the kind of work he was doing. Uh, took me on his yacht, which was definitely a selling factor. So I was there for a while. Ultimately switched from an engineering role to a quad research role where I was owning the power model for Citadel. And that was just like an infinitely interesting space just from like an economic perspective, from a computer science perspective, just like so many different angles that you can approach those problems. But uh, March rolled around. A lot of my friends were in crypto. They were recommending that I start exploring some ideas in the crypto space. So I was just playing around at that point. And I had a couple of side projects. And one of these projects got enough traction that I ended up uh, getting pretty close to assembling around for it. And ultimately, I didn't go through with it because the base architecture, like the blockchain that I was building on, essentially imploded. It was a Terra blockchain. Uh, and after that, I took a step back and I was thinking, do I even want to be a founder? Do I want to go back to finance? Do I want to do something else? And after taking that time, I ta talked with researchers and the Ethereum community which is like the biggest blockchain, uh, chatted with folks in the Cosmos community, which is more of like an alternative research-oriented community, and was just thinking about what's the future of crypto even going to look like? Is this going to be a ton of headwinds and we're going to have difficulty with adoption? Are there real use cases? What should crypto architectures look like to accommodate those real use cases? And ultimately came to a bunch of conclusions that motivated the architecture that I'm currently building, which is, uh, like you mentioned, Eclipse. And the idea here is that instead of building a full blockchain on your own, we want people to get the functionality that blockchains provide, but they can borrow the security from some existing blockchain through some mechanism that we can go through later. Yeah, love that. And for any listeners out there that are following his story, like it was actually amazing to follow in real time because you had made this big jump going into the blockchain space and building on the, the within the Terra ecosystem, and then it collapses. and you almost became the poster boy for the media to say like, oh, look at all these people with these incredible jobs, just throwing it away to jump on blockchain. And then it collapses and like, ah, we told you so. Mm -hmm. But you flipped the story, right? Like you kept grinding, searching for what is the best thing that I can do to add value to this space. 
and came up with Eclipse and then did an amazing raise. And now you're building out this amazing project. Like that's an incredible story just in and of itself. Like what was it like when you almost embraced the, like some of the values that you had early and turn it into actually like a, a positive, something that you built momentum around? Yeah, I mean, the biggest motivation was just that I believed in the long-term vision for crypto. So that's what like made me committed to stay in the space. And then the decision after Terra collapsed was, should I try to brush this under the rug or should I just own it? And it's partly just my personality, but I thought, let me just put it out there and be clear that this is something that happened. And like, not only did I learn from it, but it also pretty heavily impacted my view on what the future of crypto architecture should look like. So that was the response. And ultimately, uh, I was, I remember I did some photo shoot with like the New York Times. And I was just like, a part of my attitude was like, I almost wanted to show that we're still kind of having a good time and like, yeah, you can dunk on it, but also like, I mean, we're it, it, overall, the crypto space is so much more developed year after year. And I see it moving in a very positive direction that, yeah, like we obviously all lost a bunch of money in the last crash, but I also feel like it's coming back up in a very strong way. So I'm pretty excited about the space. Exactly. And you mentioned that you want to get involved with what the future of the space looks like. And it seems like that's exactly what Eclipse is trying to do. So do you want to walk us through a little bit more detail? Like, what is Eclipse and why is it solving an important problem? Yeah, so the main issue about around, like, blockchain functionality is just that it's a very limited execution environment, meaning that there's constraints around how much gas you can use. Gas is the money that you pay when you run a program on the blockchain. There's constraints around the kinds of operations you can do. Like, you can't just check the time on a blockchain application. In some cases, you can, like, kind of get the time but it needs to be done in a deterministic way because there are multiple people running this network and they all need to come to the same conclusion when they run your program. So because of constraints like these, if you want to run like a very sophisticated on-chain game, for example, where you're doing like a verifiable randomness or where you're building in anonymity or privacy features, or you have like crazy amounts of micropayments being streamed, the architectures today aren't really built to accommodate those use cases because they were more focused on the zero to one. How do we just get any decentralized system working rather than thinking about what are like web two scale applications that we want to start seeing crypto and designing the architecture around that. So that's what the kind of thesis around uh, Eclipse is that in order to enable these web two scale applications, we need more customizability. We need people to say like, this isn't a blockchain for DeFi. This is a blockchain that's tailored for the specific game that I'm building. And the problem with spinning up your own blockchain usually is that just from a technical and adoption perspective, it's very difficult. Now everyone needs to put their money on your chain. You have to be an infrastructure expert. So you have to build the chain yourself and you have to build in those custom op optimizations. Whereas with Eclipse, we spin you up that chain for you. And instead of trying to bootstrap security yourself by trying to run nodes on the network, instead you can borrow the security from Ethereum or from one of these great chains that already exists. Got it. And so one of the things that... I think you guys do that's unique in terms of spinning up your own chain is you fully embrace ZK rollups. And that's a, that's a space that's pushing out boundaries right now within the decentralized technology space. It's not just blockchain. It's a way to be able to do these decentralized computations. How do you explain what a ZK rollup is or a ZK proof is to somebody that's not familiar with them? Yeah, I think I'd start from like the use case perspective where like, let's say you're running a program in Amazon Web Services. You can tell Amazon Web Services, hey, I want to run this program, and they'll give you the result, but you don't really know if AWS ran that program correctly. There's no evidence you have. There's no verification. 
you could look at every single step that AWS did and you could really go all the way down to the assembly level and make sure that they're doing every operation correctly. But that's just like so cumbersome and it's impractical. So what a ZK proof is doing is it actually does look at every single line of every operation that quote unquote AWS or some other operator is doing. And it can verify constraints to make sure that those operations were all executed correctly. So for example, if you added two numbers A and B and you set it equal to some third variable C, then it would verify that A plus B minus C equals zero. And that would be an example of one constraint. You can create a bunch of constraints like this that basically constrain the program's execution so that the program couldn't have done anything that is not consistent with the instruction set that you're using. So when I'm executing a transaction as a user with a zero-knowledge proof, opposed to submitting a transaction to the mempool on the blockchain, is there a difference from what I'm seeing as a user between the two different implementations? In an ideal world, it would not look different at all. It's just one mempool versus another. The only question is who's executing it uh, and what do they do in order to ensure the security of that transaction's execution? Whereas for something like on Solana or Ethereum, you have basically everyone in the network repeating the execution of this transaction. And if the leader, now Ethereum uses proof of stake, but if the leader does an invalid state transition, then all of the nodes in the network are fully running every single transaction. So they'd see that and they'd just ignore it or they'd stop listening to that leader. Whereas uh, for a ZK proof, it would be more like you have a single node or it could be like a set of nodes that are executing these programs. And instead of everyone having to re-execute and seeing if anything invalid happened, they provide that very minimal proof or that evidence that they actually did it correctly. And everyone can just verify this little piece of proof efficiently. In the same way that if you had a data set and you wanted to verify that it was being stored correctly, you can produce a hash. Uh, and then at any point, if someone tries to give you a data set and they claim that that data set's true, that it's the same data set, you can hash it yourself and verify that the hash matches up. Do you see ZKs going beyond blockchain? where they could be used maybe by a centralized service in AWS, not necessarily use a lot of the decentralized blockchain technology that exists. Yeah, it definitely would solve, I think it would solve like half the problem and that when you look at the result from AWS, now you can verify that it was correct. But what it doesn't solve is censorship resistance in the sense that if you have centralized AWS running every program, then at some point they can refuse to run programs. And that's something that blockchain is designed to prevent or mitigate against. Whereas this is something that's actually happened with AWS and GCE. They've kicked off like Parler, for example, like the conservative social media site. There's a bunch of different social media sites and just other pieces of information that are really easy for the government to censor. Just because you just go to these American companies like Amazon or Google, you're like, hey, shut that down. Like, we don't want to see that. Uh, and a blockchain won't ever do that. Love that. Uh, let's pivot off the blockchain stuff and go a little bit more to your experience going from a software developer, quantitative developer role into a founder. And the types of problems that you're trying to solve are different. What was that transition look like? And what do you spend your time on now that you probably weren't thinking about before when you were a dev? Yeah, I mean, the biggest difference is I just don't write code anymore or I write very minimal code. I'm still involved in like almost every architecture decision. But uh, definitely would, I mean, it would be great if I could spend more time on code, but it actually isn't really a super high ROI use of time because I'm far better off hiring someone really great who can really thoroughly own that piece of code and think about all the complexities around it. And then I can just make sure that at a high level, things are moving in the right direction. So that's like the biggest shift, I think, from moving from just like a pure engineering role 
to something where you're, you really shouldn't be. And I see it's actually an indication that you're probably understaffed or there's something going wrong from a managerial perspective. And also just joining such a, I mean, this is a company that's less than 10 people at this point. With so few people, uh, everyone's involved in everything. And definitely there's some siloing. If you're an engineer, you're probably not as familiar with the BD process. But it's at that small point where, especially in the BD process, it's not just like being a BD, like a business development manager at some huge company. Instead, it's like, I actually talk with like the founders of these companies and I'm there at the initial sales process. We do the traditional BD stuff. There's some product strategy and maybe we even slightly change the positioning of the product to accommodate some of these unexpected use cases. And that's the kind of exposure across verticals that you probably wouldn't get in some other role. Mm -hmm. And so you touched on BD a little bit and there's BD from traditional startups, traditional companies, and there's BD in crypto. And there's overlap for sure, but the things that you're focusing on can be very different. How do you compare BD, business development, corporate development for a crypto company versus a traditional startup or traditional um, non-crypto entity? Yeah, good question. I think the first difference is that for BD for crypto, there's also the ecosystem component to it, which is that people own the token and they feel a part of the community. And that's actually a very desirable property because they own part of the protocol too. So you're sharing the ownership of everything you're doing and you're not necessarily just looking at cash flows into your company, but you're also thinking about value accrual to that token. Whereas for a a traditional C-Corp, you'd be thinking about what's the value of our equity that's typically informed by the cash flows coming in. So that's one difference. And the part that's similar, which is like shockingly similar because there's a lot of crypto shenanigans that would make you think otherwise, but that zero to one phase is is basically the same. The sense that you want to find a great like use case, just a single use case that you can build around and that people are very excited about rather than just having a million protocols deploy their, their code to your blockchain. And none of those protocols are likely to be well suited to what you're building because it's uninformed. You've just brought a bunch of protocols who aren't actually your ideal customers and they don't fall within your ideal customer profile. So narrowing down what's the ideal customer profile and doing that zero to one phase just getting a small cohort of customers that are really excited about what you're building and then moving from one to end. That process is pretty much identical, in, in my opinion. One of the things I've noticed is that there's not a lot of really good KPIs that a BD team can focus on and just optimize. Whereas in traditional world, you have revenue, you have sales, you have number of users, you have like time spent with product. And there's metrics that can translate that into a valuation of the equity. Yeah. So the investor can connect those two dots and allows a BD person to say like, hey, I need to growth hack sales. I need to growth hack uh, customer acquisition via business development. And crypto doesn't necessarily have that direct metric relationship to the value accrual of the token. Are there any KPIs that like you look for that you think is a really good metric for value accrual other than just token go up? Yeah, it depends on the protocol and what their tokenomics is. So what are they in the business of providing and how can you align the value that your users are getting out of that to the value accrual to your token? So for example, for us, like we're a blockchain and transaction volume is a pretty reasonable thing to be indexing on because you can imagine some future world where we charge like a penny per transaction or something like that. And then it translates to cash flow, which could flow back to the token, something like that. Whereas if I were someone like Gnosis Safe, Gnosis Safe is kind of like a bank for your crypto assets for your company. And it's a bank where 
you don't just like send money and just sign it yourself. You'd need multiple team members to agree this is actually where the money's supposed to be sent. And so it's called a multi-sig. For Gnosis Safe, maybe the better metric for them is TVL or the amount of money that people have put in that bank. And then they could eventually charge a haircut off of that money. They can say every year we charge you, I don't know, a fraction of a percent for the money that you're storing in here. And that would align their user's value with the revenue that they're pulling in. So you want to think about it that way. Uh, and it requires thinking a little bit about what is this protocol actually providing? Because sometimes the water can get money. I love that. And the first thing I think of when you say um, like sector or company specific KPIs is going back to equities where a KPI for a growth stock might be top line revenue growth or number of new subs, whereas the KPI for a value stock is going to be more margin or um, uh, value indicated. And so yep. figuring out what the right metrics are for the product is a really interesting topic because the same thing does exist in equity markets. Yeah, agreed. And like an interesting point is like for Y Combinator, for example, they recommend get revenue as soon as possible. But the way that I think about it is like the kind of revenue that's meaningful for me is like recurring revenue, first of all, high margin and sticky revenue. Like those are the things that I would rather optimize for. And actually like, and we've had cases where someone will give us a hundred grand to, for us to prioritize them and spin up a test net for them. But, and we've actually taken those to be fair, but that actually creates a little bit more of a problem than it is a solution because now your revenue looks lumpy and you don't really want that. You want to have a really easy story that you can tell. And a hundred grand, the reason why we would accept something like that is it just shows that this is a serious customer and they're really excited about what we're building. But if we don't see any serious future for that chain, we probably wouldn't prioritize it because ultimately we care about the transaction volume that we're going to get from it. Going back to the transition that you made from traditional finance into the blockchain space, the tools that you use are sometimes differently. Like you might've been using Python or C++, now you might be doing Rust or Solidity, but there's some more underlying technologies that are slightly different. And there's actually a lot of similarities. If you were to like explain the transition to somebody that's been doing development their entire career, but never done anything with blockchain, how would you describe it? And how would you tell them about what the challenges and similarities are? Yeah, really good question. So some stuff is in common, such as we're not using any bespoke languages. Our code base is totally in Rust. So a lot of engineers already have exposure to that or they're able to learn it. The stuff that's different is that the blockchain tech stack is far less developed than, for example, the web development tech stack. Web development, you can take, oh, I, I want to run a, a Linux like EC2 instance, or I could use Google Cloud and run Windows. I could pick whatever web server I want. I can pick my database. And it's also modularized. Whereas for crypto, it's not really like that at this point. If you're writing for Ethereum, you have a few options on, you could deploy to one of these Ethereum rollups, which are blockchains like ours. You're basically left with a handful of languages that you can pick from, but you can't really mix and match those pieces. So that's one thing that I think takes developers a little bit of getting used to which is working around the constraints that blockchain has. And part of this is some of these constraints just cannot be removed, removed at all, such as the constraints around deterministic behavior. And you might do some kind of hack or some weird, like non-deterministic behavior in a web server, something that's based on, like we mentioned, the time, like the clock or something like that. But that's not something that's available as someone who's a blockchain developer. And did you mainly been recruiting engineers that already have experience within the Web3 space or is a lot of it the first time that they've made the jump? 
It's like half and half. We have folks, a lot of folks from traditional finance. So one of our lead engineers is from Chain Street, folks from Optiver, um, one guy from Jump who does some contracted work with us. So yeah, that, those are definitely like some of the most like common archetypes because traditional finance and crypto are so similar in terms of motivation. We're building financial markets and we're thinking about the market in like all so many ways. Of course, crypto has this software development angle to it. The sense that it's not just about moving money around, but it's also about creating these decentralized computers or these independently verifiable computers. So, uh, so that's one background. And then the other, like you mentioned, it's folks who have just been in crypto for years. And one of our solutions architects, like the whole CTO at some big Solana protocol. And those guys are good to have in the room because they can often mitigate some of the pitfalls that the folks from traditional finance might not anticipate. But, but I will say as a whole, like the crypto space in terms of talent, is very high variant. Like there's so many folks that are self-learned, which is good and bad. You know, it's great because it means there's a lot of interest in the space. But the bad part is that like maybe they're lacking some of those software engineering fundamentals, which I take for granted coming from somewhere like Citadel. Pretty much everyone went through like a full, at least a CS degree or something like that. They understand if I give them some sort of like, I don't know, order adder versus logarithmic algorithm, they can quickly assess what's the trade-offs that we're looking at. Whereas for someone who's totally crypto native and is self-taught, they might be lacking some of those fundamental architecture things that for us, given that we're building the blockchain itself, are really critical. So you've gone over Eclipse and what are some really good use cases that you see for it? I think what I want to start seeing in crypto is people using the applications, not because they want to see the number go up or make money, but they're using it because it's providing some functionality that they just couldn't get off-chain. So like on-chain gaming is a really exciting space for us. Because and for the one thing, people play games for fun. So that's a really important property for us. And it's really simple. It's almost kind of like a, like kind of a tripe thing at this point. Like everyone says that games have to be fun, of course. But the game also needs to use crypto in a very native way, whether it's by maybe you're spectating a player and you're streaming micropayments to them. Or you have some sort of asset swaps and you can use those assets natively in other games in some constrained fashion, which is enforced by the blockchain. This is stuff that we want to obviously think more about. And we actively work with a handful of game developers and smaller game studios and thinking about what's the cutting edge innovation that we could build at using crypto game mechanics, similar to the advent of free-to-play and Web2 gaming, where free-to-play was a controversial thing. People were confused by it. They said, this is never going to be profitable. The point of the game is you pay and then you get to play it and own it. But uh, free-to-play ended up being massively successful because it created these giant ecosystems around the games that they, were, uh, that they were implemented in. So similarly, by having token ownership and some sort of native crypto functionality within a crypto game, you could build a similar community, especially if you could very natively own something like create to earn, for example. You, when you create in-game assets or user-generated content, maybe as people use those assets, they stream you payments. Something like that, that takes the best parts of crypto, such as ownership, such as uh, streaming micropayments or transactions, and incorporates them into a native way that actually solves an issue for the game studio. Because a lot of these game studios are definitely limited by the amount of content that they can generate in-house, especially quality content. And having an asset that you attribute value to, that you own, at least I've noticed, really makes me engaged with the community, with an application, even if it's not mooning, but ownership of something that has a value that I could sell it for, it makes me more engaged. 
Um, and I don't know what the psychological like word for that is. I'm sure there's one, but I've noticed it actually has an impact on me. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's pros and cons, right? The pro is that you definitely create these really strong communities. And it, the con is that it just shows you like, it's a little bit cynical, right? The moment someone has some financial upside, their entire demeanor changes. Like everything is now geared toward uh, supporting that community and helping the token go up. So it's kind of a weird thing that, uh, yeah, it's like unexpected because I guess I just, people don't think about traditional relationships that way. Or even in traditional companies, if you get equity, at least for me in my previous jobs, when I had equity in a company, I'm like, oh, that's cool. But I kind of value it at zero because it's not liquid. It's going to be wild until I see it. But the token's totally liquid. You can sell it at any point. That's the point of these uh, AMMs and some of these crypto innovations. They're just pools of money you can trade against directly. So you can always convert it to US dollars if you wanted to. Yeah. And people used to like hate on some market makers and say, what do you do? Oh, we provide liquidity. And you would that question, what does it actually mean? But now when I start having some of these assets, whether it's an NFT that connects a community that is used for an in-game purchase, that liquidity actually like is real to me in some yeah. way. And it's interesting to see where that space just continues to go. Uh, but in terms of the space going forward, I'm curious about Eclipse going forward. So what do you guys see on your roadmap right now? Yeah, so another vertical that I want to expand into is physical infrastructure networks. So that's like, you might've heard of Helium. It's like a decentralized wireless network. We're really excited about a project called React. It's a decentralized battery market. Where It's just interesting to me, given I was doing power at Citadel. But in the daytime, the price is so cheap for power in California because the sun's out, we have all these renewables. But then in the evening, the sun goes down and there just aren't batteries to take that power from the daytime and apply it to the evening. So the evening price is actually historically very high. So that's a problem that could be solved by just building huge batteries, but it's hard to build big batteries. So the solution here is that they're incentivizing like residential people just plug batteries in and they can like leverage the power that was stored by those batteries to offset the price and they can take some of that daytime power and use it in the evening. So stuff like that is interesting. An immediate next step is right now we're uh, running this small cohort of testnet chains. So we're getting really good feedback on those. We've been iterating. And I think the next step is expand the testnet and allow more people in. We're going to start making some of these testnets public. So regular folks can claim like a Eclipse membership pass and they can try using those testnet chains, give us their feedback. So, uh, so those are the next two steps for us. Awesome. So you touched on your power background. For people that aren't familiar, that is electricity on the grid that you can buy rights to so you can securitize it. And you're also now going into the crypto world, obviously. What do you find in similarities between the commodity space as well as the crypto space? And, and where are the differences? Yeah, well, what's cool is that some of these efficient market structures, which are tried and true in the commodity space or in traditional finance, such as the auctions that happen, these uniform uh, clearing price auctions in the power market, where they basically take bids from power producers and they estimate what's the demand and they clear the price at the economically efficient price. Those concepts are often incorporated into crypto, such as uh, let's say you're, you have an order book on a crypto exchange. You don't want to let all the value accrue to the first folks who get their, their money in because those guys can make sometimes like painful arbitrage decisions for the end user. If I'm just like an ordinary guy and I want to buy Ethereum, someone could like buy it up right before I, I purchase it and then they can sell immediately after. So that kind of manipulation, you, you kind of want to mitigate it a little bit. It's called a sandwich attack. So you can build in things like batch auctions 
to fight against that, which are concepts from traditional finance. So that's one thing uh, I think people will sometimes describe like Bitcoin or Ethereum as like digital gold or digital silver. Hard to say if that's true. I guess there is a finite supply of Bitcoin, which makes it a little bit analogous to gold. But I don't think it's really the case for Ethereum right now. So yeah, that analogy I don't think is that strong. I think one of the interesting comparisons that I've seen amongst uh, a couple of friends is do we treat it like a commodity where like ETH, for example, is a input in order to purchase block space or to execute opcodes within the EVM? Yep. Or do you think of it more like a currency where the value accrual is essentially coming from the nation state? And I think there's interesting comparisons between the two. It's, it'll be, see how it plays out. But I do think it's very tangible to have that commodities-like background where you can think of a, an S&D supply and demand-like yeah. model in the context of valuations for especially L1 tokens. I think it might be a little bit different in the um, if it's like an L2 or a token uh, that's used on top of an L1. But the commodity comparison is different. Valuation metrics obviously aren't there. Um, but very interesting space. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that the tokens that will, at least the vast majority, if not all of the tokens that succeed, will need to have utility. There's no reason to hold that token. You can't use it for anything. Then I don't really see how that token could ever maintain its price. Yeah, I don't think anything could exist if it doesn't have utility. Right. If something doesn't have utility, it like doesn't even exist to begin with. Is yeah. an interesting question. Um, so... Neil, love you coming on. I could honestly go down this rabbit hole for hours. We only have so much time. I got to head back to Miami. Uh, and thanks everyone for listening. So if you want to follow us, check us out on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube. We are the Hedgineer Podcast or check us out at the website, hedgineer.io. And lastly, join the Slack channel. I'll be there all day working on a couple of different projects. I would love to be able to see you there. Thanks everyone. Engineer.